Hi guys, welcome to the Crocast Podcast. I'm your host Nate, along with my co-host Matt. Hey. And today we have the special honor of being joined by Mr. Chris Dieter. Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, glad to be here. Glad to be here. So Chris, uh, what first got you into reptiles and specifically crocodilians? <laughs> uh, probably like everybody else, I just uh, watched a lot of Godzilla when I was a kid and kind of just grew from there. So you just always wanted to go ahead and keep the... A lot of guys grew up to have big fast cars and I just want to get bigger reptiles and so you just kind of work your progression through and eventually you go from you know small animals to monitor lizards to eventually the, the biggest ones of all the, the crocodiles. So. Alright so uh, you are the owner and curator of Crocodile Encounter down here in Angleton, Texas uh-huh. and is there anything special about your facility that you feel proud of? Uh, you know, I don't, it's, that's a loaded question. Um, as a de- it's We're the largest crocodile facility in the United States. So, you know, if that's something to be proud of, I don't know. But <laughs> it, it, it is what it is. But um, we've had a lot of success in that uh, with the species that we keep and, uh, and with reproduction. And, and more importantly, just being a community member. To, we've been really well received with the community here and, uh, and kind of a little bit I don't want to say a model facility for how education can be done with crocodilians, but we've done really, really well with it through the years and, uh, and alongside keeping our conservation aspect uh, growing as well. So it's kind of worked pretty well in that regard. Would you say you're more of an education facility as opposed to like a conservation facility? I think our education is our primary focus always and um, it allows us to do the educational component for the public allows us to do the conservation angle uh, because you know conservation basically you have to have a funding source if you don't have a funding source you can't do any conservation and so i would say the education aspect is always first here and then uh, you know that feeds into the conservation angle so what what made you want to go into like starting a reptile park in the education aspect and everything well, I actually never wanted to do a reptile park. It's been totally organic. I, I was an educator. I uh, taught high school for a lot of years, and then uh, we started doing educational programs with the animals. So I was keeping them in the classroom, and as time went on, it just kind of evolved to where we, because of animal welfare issues, we don't like to use animals for very long. Like, we use an alligator in an educational presentation. When it hit, like, two years of age, we would retire it. And people just kind of organically started to say, can we come see the retired animals? Because they were larger, of course. And uh, it kind of just started from there. And it just, uh, it's kind of weird. I mean, it was never intended to be what it is at all. So it's just, it's a totally unplanned, un, you know, just, it's just kind of happened like that. It's, it's really kind of, a, it's like I said, it's a good thing because it's been organic. So we kind of grown steadily through the years. So. So have there been any new projects you've been working on with your park? Uh, we always have a new project. Uh, <laughs> there's, all, there's always some out there. Right now I would say our, our well I don't even know if I want to say our primary project is, I mean, we have our, our what we call tea plows, the Balbino Now crocodiles, we have Temistema. Uh, Chinese alligators are not a new project here, but they're kind of a omnipresent project here. Um, there's always a lot of species that are, are, are moving around out here and uh, Cuban crocodiles are uh, a project we're gonna, probably going to reproduce these in the next year or two. Um, same for saltwater crocodiles, but uh, I would say the newest projects are probably the T-positives and the, and the Temistimus, so. What's your, 
what's your um, what's your favorite crocodilian? <laughs> that depends on what day of the week it is. Um, <laughs> I, as a general rule, the Nile crocodile is always my favorite, and uh, I don't come off of them all that often. They're they're the one that we have the most here, but the Orinoco crocodile is. Is a one A on that list because they're they're pretty impressive animals and uh, I also like uh, the acutus an awful lot. Um, see, I already told you three, so obviously I don't have a real straight up favorite. So, and, uh, and I really like the tamistamas a lot too. But uh, I, I literally just keep on going, and, and I don't want to slight the American alligator or the Chinese alligator either because they're. But as a general rule, if I had to pick one to keep, it'd probably be now crocodile or the Orinoco crocodile. If I had to. <laughs> <laughs> what what made you um, go specifically into crocodilians and, and kind of push out like lizards and snakes and other? Reptiles? Well, we keep those too. I mean, they're here, and we keep a lot of turtles. But um, I've always, when I was, I grew up in Connellsville, Pennsylvania. And there's not a crocodilian for a long, many, many miles, and. Uh, I, I intentionally wanted to move south to be where there were crocodilians native, and of course that's the American alligator. And so it was either going to be here or Florida, or you know somewhere along the, the coast down here. And just so happened we landed here in Texas, and uh, and they had a pretty good population of alligators. And uh, I, I really can't say why. It was just they've always fascinated me since I was young, and um, you know and I, I literally have. I don't want to say dedicated my life to it because that might be too strong, but uh, but to move where we did because they were here and then to have this type of situation, it's kind of, I guess you could say we kind of went all in on them just from a fascination standpoint. So it's, it's worked out. So. <laughs> <laughs> Better half. <laughs> So you mentioned uh, one of your current projects is the uh, Chinese alligators. Yeah. Uh, so what does all that entail in terms of like paperwork and just general they're, they're work? They're an SSP animal. So what that is, that's a species survival plan. And so basically what happens is that zoos across the country that uh, maintain SSP animals, there's a, a central genetic bank on these animals so that if you're part of the SSP, your animal is its genetics and bloodlines are tracked, so that you are not crossing closely related animals, or you know. And it, it, what it does, it just helps to to keep the animal the lines intact, so that if something could happen to a wild population, then you have a kind of a fallback group um, because you're not going to produce enough. You know, I mean, I, mean, I, I say that. I mean, I, I actually let me take that back. I, I think you could produce enough in captivity to make a substantial dent in a reintroduction program, particularly with a play an animal that uh, is adapted to, like, say, our climate here. Because right now we have, I believe, 21, 23 Chinese alligators on site, most of which are females. Within five or six years, those animals will come online. And if we decide to start breeding all of those animals, you could be very easily producing 100 animals annually, if not more. And right now the current wild population is about 150. That's max, it's probably actually a little bit less than that. And uh, now there are about 5,000 animals on farms over there. And, uh, but if you start producing 100 plus animals a year, 
you you could make a, a reasonable dent in a wild population to, if you want to do reintroductions. The problem with it is you can, it doesn't really work like that. And um, I don't want to say it's a dirty little secret of some of these things, but reintroductions don't happen often. So most of the animals, particularly in the crocodilian world, uh, you really have to have a place for the animal to go when you before you actually breed them. Otherwise, you end up overloaded with animals. I mean, because the crocodilian is, I know Nate and I have talked about this before, they're the perfect storm of high reproduction, a lot of babies, and a really large adult size. And there's really just no place, like, you know, if you have an elephant, an elephant has one baby every two years, that's your planning. So, you know, in a decade, you're dealing with five, five animals. Uh, with crocodilian, you could have, in that same decade, several hundred you know, if not more than that, of any particular species, like say Orinoco crocodiles, which have 30 to 50 babies in clutch. You're talking three to 500 babies potentially for one female. That's a lot of animals you have to house in a winter situation or anything like that, so. So, um, you don't think uh, reintroduction efforts are um, like a, a great long-term solution? No, I think they're an excellent solution. They just don't happen very often because there's a lot of there's a lot of politics to it. There's a lot of permitting and such. It's not like you can just go like say to Venezuela and say, "Hey, we have 300 Orinoco crocodiles we produced here. We want to let them out." It just doesn't work like that. Or, or you know, "Hey, we produce 150 Chinese alligators. We want to take them to China and just let them go." It just, it just doesn't work like that. It sounds good on paper. It's it's great public relations. Um, but it's a lot harder than than just saying you know you're going to do it. It would be great, you know, because then you could ramp up production. Like we have 13 Orinoco crocodiles or whatever it is out here, and you know we don't breed them at all because they can't survive the winter. So for each one that you have, you have to have winter housing, which is large, expensive housing to do. And right now with 13, it's what it is, but. You know, you multiply that up to 50 to 100 animals and start doing it annually and you have no place to put them. I mean, it, it quickly would be a, a, where no no facility can do that and be stable. I mean, for one animal like that, it's just not, you know, it's really just not doable. And so they're always scrambling to find places to put these, these large crocodilians when they do reproduce them. And it gets to be real problematic, you know, real, real problematic to find good spots for them all to go, so. Um, how do you balance with um, running a reptile park and stuff? It's I, reptiles in my mind is kind of like NASCAR. Like people watch <laughs> it for the crash, right? <laughs> but but um, so like, how do you balance like making it entertaining for people, but at the same time not like making it seem like all reptiles or crocodilians are these super dangerous man-eaters and stuff. That's actually the easiest part. They Honestly, when most people go to any reptile facility, um, I'm not, typically they're, they're very boring, a lot of them, and uh, because the animal enclosures are too small. And so when you go to like a lot of the places, the, the crocodile has a choice of either flopping in the water or sitting up on a little tiny piece of land that it has. But here, our enclosures are so big, I mean, some of them are well over an acre in size, that when the crocodiles come down, it's almost like seeing them in the wild. Like if you were gonna go to, say, Venezuela or Africa, and you would see the animals slide down the bank when they knew that the wildebeest was about to cross over there, you know, they it's gonna be a feeding. 
That's the same thing that happens when our tour guides go through. The crocodiles come to the feeding stations. The people get to see them swim over. So they're getting to see the natural behavior of that and seeing them swim over. And then they're just seeing the actual feeding of what the animal actually is. And we make a very big point of saying they're not bloodthirsty killers. You know, this is, you know, and so we factor in the, the, the amazement of what the animal actually is. And people really get it, man. It resonates with people. They're, we very rarely have to do any of the what you would explain like that one and that's more of a, i think what you say is almost like a florida experience where people want to stick their heads in the alligators mouths and stuff like that we found that that's a really antiquated method and uh and really antiquated way of looking at the animal the, the general public in 2021 is very very open to a naturalistic wildlife experience to where that's what they really want to see that's what they really appreciate and a large number of people, I would say the majority, see that kind of old stunt as, well, animal abuse. You know, I think that's what a lot of people view it as now. And, and so we, we steer way clear of anything like that. So. And we've, had, we've never had any issues at all with in terms of entertainment. Matter of fact, it, it works the exact opposite way. You know, we get the animals will jump for their food and they'll come up and do all that. It's quite, it's spectacular enough. You don't, you don't need to do. We, we, we're props for them and, uh, and they do just fine. So. That's good. So, uh, you mentioned that education, using education more as like a way to funnel in resources to conservation. Yeah. What are some uh, conservation efforts you help fund? Uh, man, we do a lot of stuff. Um, we do bongo surveillance project. Uh, from the crocodile end, we bought an entire 25 acres in Belize just to do conservation. They have two crocodile species there, Cutis and Morlays. And that's with the Crocodile Research Coalition. They're running programs down there. Uh, we give money to a variety of conservation issues but, uh, in place like that. And so, but what we've decided to do going forward is because of the way we did it in Belize, a lot of these places, the, the biggest thing a lot of conservation places do not have is their own land. And so they're always constantly begging and pleading for dollars to do this, to do that. But like friends for the Orinoco crocodile, if you can go down, I know they need grow out pens for to grow out the animals that they're doing in their their reintroduction programs that they're breeding down there on site. I, I think breeding on site is the best thing you can ever do. Like nothing we do in America will ever be as good as being able to breed Orinoco crocodile in Venezuela or like breeding the Chinese alligator in China. It's just you know they're just great ways to do it. So we're more interested in I think going forward like actually building the facilities like there on site in these places because you can fund these down there for dime on a dollar compared to the United States and so we're more interested in like filming a partnership with the people that are doing this in Venezuela building the actual facility down there for them with our you know under our banner same thing that we're doing in Belize and you just kind of go forward from that it's just a far better way to uh, spend your conservation dollar than it is just to send a check. So writing a check to an organization is probably the easiest thing you can actually do. And then what they do with that is up to them. You don't have any real control over that. There's some really great places like Crockfest that they use 100% of the money for conservation projects, but other ones have a lot of administration fees and such like that. So you don't even know how much money is actually being used for what you're doing. But, um, you know, we always give the crock fest and such like that, but we're, our goal is, you know, I think, changed to where we're actually going to pick up property and do stuff like that to hold the groups for that down there. So, 
just it's kind of a different way of doing it. We think it's a little bit more effective. So um, you mentioned you had other kind of reptiles like snakes and lizards. What 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 other kind of stuff do you have at your facility? Uh, we got a large herd of tortoises. There's probably I think we keep five or six species of tortoises out here. There's I don't know how many snakes we have. It's probably fifteen or twenty. Um, there's tegus. There's a lot of stuff like that. We have a lot of aquatic turtles. There's probably four or five species of soft shells, various, you know, sliders and cooters and whatnot like that. So there's a lot of turtles and tortoises out here. Um, all the stuff that we use is for, you know, just to fill in the gaps on the educational presentations that we do. So we have a snake and lizard presentation. And of course, we let people feed in the tortoise yard and that kind of thing. So, and then we keep some big mammals too. We keep bison and eland and water buck and uh, red kangaroos and, and stuff like that. So. That's just filler for the park, though. I mean, that just kind of fills the gaps around. So. I got you. Cool. So, you mentioned uh, your Chinese uh, alligator project. Mm -hmm. uh, is it true that you kind of made a bit of a breakthrough in terms of breeding them here in the U.S.? Uh, well, they had been bred in the United States for several decades, and. Um, Part of that, to be honest, is that the animals are kept indoors. A lot of times they're kept in northern climates. So like when you're dealing in a zoological situation, um, it's very artificial. I don't, it doesn't matter what a zoo does for the most part, it's, it's very artificial. And here we're totally natural. So when we put animals together down here, you expect them to reproduce. And it's really, when people, they always want to give us credit for these Chinese alligators and the, the Nile crocs we reproduce and, and other things, but I always feel a little bit uh, sheepish about it a little bit because really all we do is build them an enclosure, give them proper nutrition, and we pretty much let nature do the rest. There's really no, there's no magic to what, we, you know, that's, it's just proper care. If you give an animal proper care, you're going to have reproduction. And uh, we get reproduction all across out here. It's everything from waterbuck to eland to uh, you, you name it, everything breeds here. So, and it's because they're all kept naturally. And um, if something is not reproducing, then you, you know you probably have a problem with the, with the animal itself. But uh, yeah, it's, it's nothing, you know, I wish there was more of a story to it. It's just, uh, you know, when we got our female, when the Bronx Zoo, it's a partnership with the Bronx Zoo. And, so whenever we got the female sent to it, she was young. And she was like seven years old, I believe, seven or eight years old. So we figured she'd be here and grow for a couple of years before we see our first class, but she bred the first year. You know, and so we ended up with, I think, two hatchlings that year. Her fertility was low, which is normal in crocodilians. First year, you almost always have low fertility. And it's increased every year since. So now we've had four straight years of reproduction from her, and she's 11 now. So. You know, she's not even really not even in her prime yet, so she'll continue to get better for the next several decades. So you know, and eventually she'll start declining egg total and everything like that. But she she's just now entering her, her not really. I don't want to say not even entering it. She's still probably five or six away from actually entering her peak. So she's a good female. Um. So obviously, you you, you uh, put a big emphasis on like the natural environment and everything. Obviously, you're you're a zoo and a reptile park, so you can do more of that. Um, I've noticed in like the hobby though, of just like kind of individuals, people are really moving towards the end and stressing to make the uh, enclosures as natural as possible and getting yeah. bioactive enclosures and stuff. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that in that regard? I think it's fantastic. I mean, we keep 
you know, I have two sons, and so there's animals that we keep as pets, and they're all in bioactive type enclosures and stuff like that. It, it's just a, you know, it's it's really like you just using bearded dragons as an example. I mean, they've gone from people keeping them and swearing you had to keep them on paper towels to keep them on artificial turf to now they're keeping on what dirt i mean i can't believe people even argued about keeping them on dirt they should be on dirt i mean it's just to me that's just common sense you know so but there are people out there that would swear up and down you know you can't keep them on dirt it just blows my mind about stuff like that and uh but yeah i think that's a very positive trend in the in the hobby because if for a long time i mean everybody's wanting to shove things in drawers and drawers have their place i'm not i'm not an anti-drawer guy i think for certain snakes they really actually are very positive you know as opposed to the snake being out in the open all the time or you know even in an enclosure where it has a lot of hiding place i think there's a lot of snakes that do very well in drawers but um i think if you're having naturalistic vivariums i think that's a that's a positive thing for the animal as a whole you know so they're they're like they're seen as less disposable now i mean you guys are young and everything but back in the early days man when all this herpetoculture was starting up i mean they would stack these things up in aquarium you go to a reptile show and they'd be 50 lizards there stacked on top of each other and you know 20 of them be virtually on death's doorstep and they just throw them away in the trash you know so the animal the whole industry has improved you know radically compared to what it was you know several decades ago so and, that, and that's a good thing. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned you used to be into monitor lizards? Yeah, I, I used to um, breed a lot of monitor lizards. We were actually some of the first people uh, and that were actually breeding them. There was a guy out in Arizona named Frank Reedus, and uh, he was really breeding a lot of monitor lizards. And then there's a guy here in Houston named Rob Faust. He was breeding a lot of monitors, and then there was us. And uh, so we were, I, I know that we have the first written account of breeding Asian water monitors. We were the first people to do that and publish it. And uh, now they're commonly bred. You know, back when we did it, back in, uh, man, that was probably uh, early 90s maybe. And uh, we, there was no one breeding Asian water monitors. The, the, the imports were so cheap that, uh, and they still are inexpensive, but there was no market for captive bred water monitors and uh, at all really and we were doing it we were breeding argus uh black throats um i think that was the primary three that we were doing frank was breeding kimberly rock monitors he was breeding the ackies you know a lot of australian stuff out there flower rufus and all, all of those that uh and then now the entire thing has changed monitors are, are very commonly kept and bred and what was interesting is that when we were doing very much trial by error to figure out how to successfully do this and um one of the things we just learned is just have deep dirt deep warm dirt you're you're gold you know i mean that was really because back then everybody's just too just too shallow for a big lizard they sometimes took two or three feet of dirt you know when you're keeping an animal in your you know your home or wherever you're keeping i mean two or three foot of dirt is a lot of dirt you know and uh and then you have to keep it just the right temperature for them to target it. But once you got that right, yeah, they were very, very easy. They would, they would breed constantly. <laughs> so honestly, when we were breeding Argus monitors, we were breeding them like chickens. They, we had a male in between females and we had the, the enclosure subdivided and we lift the door, let him come over here and mate with this one over here. 
So we saw she was grabbing, we separate him off, put him back on the female over here, he makes sure she was grabbing. This one would lay over here, give her about a month or so to bounce back food-wise, because they bounce back pretty quick, shift them back over, it was darn near just like a conveyor belt. I mean, it was just insane. <laughs> it was crazy, <laughs> you know? Just not so, and they were popular. The Argus monitors were pretty popular. You don't see as many of them anymore, mm. but, uh, but they were really great animals to keep. They stood up on their back legs, you know, tripoded a lot and everything. They were, they were really, really neat animals. So, but yeah, but we learned a lot about um, breeding reptiles through monitors. Cause like I said, back in the day, there was no, like now if you want to breed any species, you can pretty much go online, find somebody that's done it. There's almost a cookbook to how to do it. But back then, I mean, man, there was nothing like that. I mean, so we were all kind of just filling our way through it and, uh, and that made it fun. You learn a lot from it. And by doing that through that process, you know, it's crocodilians are a breeze. I mean, there's what we learned there to carry over into these other animals has made crocodilian breeding very, very easy. You know, so crocodilians breed very easy as a, as a general concept, but, um, you know, but learning about nesting and just how the animals react to certain environmental stimuli, it was, it was, it was very, big good, good learning curve on it all you know so have you uh ever observed any unusual behavior when it comes to like females crocodilians laying eggs oh we've observed a lot of behaviors i don't know that i would call them unusual um i think it's usual all usual for the species like the niles they they're always going to be a, a hole nester now I, I will say that they the niles prefer to nest in sand but since we don't have a lot of sandy soil here they will nest in uh, a lot of unique ways. They kind of, they stay a little bit more shallow than they would otherwise, but like the alligators, they make a mound, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, and the mounds are neat and they're easy to find and you know, they're, they're, they're pretty straightforward. So, crocodiles are very straightforward in a lot of ways. I mean, they're, they're very, very straightforward in a lot of ways. So if you can keep them with enough water, get their temperatures right and uh, manage to stay safe around them. I mean, they're, they're very, uh, straightforward in their care for the most part, you know. So. You said they're um, they're digging their nest shallower. Does that affect the sex that's coming out? Or yeah, it does. And now everything we incubate here is we incubate for a female. So our entire group out here is like 99% female because you just don't need that many males. I mean, you don't, and it allows us to track our bloodlines and know which males with the female. And um, <clears throat> like our now crocodile group, we have I think 162 now crocs. I think there's six males, maybe seven, and um, but when you have a natural, we've only ever had them hatch naturally one time because it's something we really try to avoid. There's no real positive to it at all um, because if you miss the nest and if you miss the nest and the, and the animals hatch, you run the risk of a bird picking one up and depositing it somewhere where you don't want it to be. Um, you know that kind of thing and also it will change the sex because when they're sitting up high like that you're gonna you're gonna end up with you know uncontrolled sex ratio as opposed to what we want to we want to make sure we have the females and, and uh, so we did miss an S one year and we ended up finding the hatchlings and that was good but um, it's something that we really try to avoid so. so you said you only have like six or so Nile Crocs male Nile Crocs but the majority of those are the T plus albinos. Yeah, correct? the actual ones that are not T plus, we get uh, one, two, three. Yeah, so that's yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. So T plus albinos here, next 
big project? Yeah, we week? probably will not actually breed any more normal nows. I don't want to say ever again, but it's going to be a long, long time. I, I can't see any particular reason to breed any normal nows right now. So, like everyone that will breed will be the the T positives. Just like I, like I told you today, we're going to turn the whole park yellow. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It'll, it'll look really radical when they're really big and they're all coming out. It, and that is part of it, because I'm not a really big morph guy, but I really do like those. And um, there's just a visual thing that happens when you see those. And like when the public's out here and they look at our normal now crocodiles, they love them. I mean, the Madagascar group is very pretty. They're golden. Uh, the South African group tends to have more, more of a yellow white to them. But when they see those T positive albinos, it's, it's the equivalent, if not more, than how the general public sees white alligators. And uh, they will literally stop and go, oh look, that's an albino. They literally, that's, they'll say this to them and they're stunned by them. And so when you have a group of animals like that and the people get to see them like when they're adults, it's so visually stunning. It's just something that they will never forget. And it, it really does help the cause of the animal worldwide because more people see that they think them as a beautiful animal rather than something that is you know an animal to be shot or vermin or whatever you want to call it so there's, there's a real place for an animal like that from just a visual beauty standpoint so um a question i like to ask people and i i, I find it funny because the the response i get back kind of varies based on like age and stuff but since you're a crocodilian guy what do you um what are your thoughts on like steve Irwin? And, his kind of oh, I thought he did a lot of good. I do think he did a lot of good. I think he was kind of over the top on some things, but uh, but I will say this: he to his he did things that uh, that I think were right that a lot of people take for granted over here that I think are wrong. And one of them that I think that he did that was really right is he was adamant that he did not want that animal to get tired. And when you're around crocodiles long enough or alligators long enough, you do not want that animal to get tired. That lactic acid buildup in their blood will literally kill that animal. And there's certain people out in, uh, you'll see them in Florida and such like that, they literally try to tire the animal out. That's like their goal. I'm gonna get it tired so that I can handle the animal easier. And you will handle it easier, but there's also a chance that the animal is gonna die. And so Steve, to his credit, was very, very good about uh, making sure he did not want that animal to get tired. They, they would get on the back as fast as they could, restrain it. And uh, it was just, I, I thought that was a very positive thing that he was doing, you know. So even though it looked kind of flashy sometimes, and, and it was, he was doing the right thing in that regard, where a lot of people, will, they'll dance around with the animal, try to make it tired. And that also looks flashy, but it's also the wrong kind of flash. So. He was, he was doing, if you know crocodilians, you know that he was doing the right thing there. You know, making that animal be subdued so it's not going to be, you know, tired and filled with lactic acid. It's just a safer thing for the animal. He was putting the animal first, you know, so when he went and dove on the animal, it looks kind of like, like a crazy man, but I mean, you know, and, and he probably was, but, <laughs> but, but his heart was in the right place. So he wasn't, he wasn't doing it for him. You know, so he could have danced around it, made him tired, and do all that stuff too, and uh, and he did not do that. You know, so but he 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 did a lot for crocodiles, though he really did. I mean, he I don't think there's probably been anybody in the last three decades that's raised an animal's status like 
that guy did. I mean, you know, really, really impressive what he did there. So. Yeah. I think his biggest impact is um, impact people like me and Nate's age of getting us actually into the the, the reptile hobby and interested in that kind of stuff. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. There's no doubt. Yeah. I feel like the majority of uh, people our age and a little younger who are into reptiles are mostly in, got into it because of him. Oh, that's a lot for sure. And the reptile industry's changed. You got so much bigger. I mean, like when I was like yeah, like when I was like. 20 or whatever, just tell you, like, there were no reptile shows. I mean, you know, if, if there was, it'd be like four guys coming together because they kept corn snakes or something or whatever. There, that now these the whole industry is just it's been really interesting to see the evolution of the of the reptile show as time has gone on. I mean, it's it's become I actually like them less now. There to me, their heyday was probably maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Because I, I remember we would go to reptile shows and, and you could actually get, I don't want to say good deals, but they, they were pretty good deals, you know. Now you go, they're very similar to just going to a reptile store. You know, the pricing and everything like that. I mean, you can deal breeder direct and, and that was great. But I remember there was, we'd go to a show and there was this guy at the end of the show, he'd just take all the snakes and put them in his bucket. He'd just put $5 on it, you know. I mean, there was just a crazy <laughs> number of morphs and stuff in there and you could just... You know, if you want them, you just go and get them. And it was really great. And, uh, and the variety of animals was a lot more, you know. And um, now you get a lot of these reptile shows, and they're, they're very heavy on one category or the other. And um, Ball pythons, spear dragons. Yeah, you know, so in that, re yeah, in that regard, it's, uh, it's a little less... Um, I think that what it used to be, you know, but there are some, I mean, like there's a really good one here in Texas called Herps. He tries to get a lot of variety here and, uh, you know, I know the NARBCs, you'll see some pretty good variety there, but, um, it just depends. They, they seem like they're kind of flexing back a little bit towards variety. Now I know they're doing some venomous shows and stuff now, but, uh, and that's, I think, you know, if you like to go see, see a variety of stuff, that's good. Um, but you know, it, I, 15 years ago, that was like the standard. And, and also a lot of it's got to do with regulations because they're, they're really tightened up on a lot of states now and on what you can keep here or what you can keep there. So there, there's a lot of that too. So it's not, just, it's not just one thing. There's kind of a lot of factors there. So That's um, one thing that I, I think um, is interesting is like when, when you were like in the field and stuff and there, there wasn't a lot of people there, like I feel like the majority for the most part of people like they had to like really like reptiles in order yeah. to stay and dedicate their their lives or devote most of their lives to to working with them as opposed to like now I feel like you get a lot of there it's um it's starting it's it's not as bad as this but it started to turn like like how people are with dogs where they just get a dog and they have no idea anything about the dog and yeah that they have to raise it's, it a certain way yeah it's been like that for a little while you know what somewhere along the line I don't know exactly know where it happened like, as like I said, we were breeding monitor lizards. Back there in the day, man, there was no market for monitor lizards, cows and bread. I mean, you, like, because the, the imports were coming in, you could buy a water monitor import for 50 bucks, you know? So nobody was going to pay 750 for your captain bread water monitor. I think I ended up selling them for like 200 bucks or something. And now, I mean, they go $1,500. Literally, I go on Fauna Classifies, I'll look at these water monitors on there, I'm going, God dang it, $1,500. I can't even believe it, you know? I mean, it just blows my mind. And, uh, you know, and we were doing this, and, no, and we had no competition. We were the only people doing it, you know? 
and it just there was no market for them out there because people just didn't view captive bread back then quite the same as they they were just happy to have the monitor like that so somewhere along the line it became more of a of an industry you know as opposed to um guys are just really passionate about what they what they had what they were keeping because i mean i know guys who are just they were really passionate well you could pick your animal there was some guy there who's crazy about them he just had a hundred of them you know and whether it be rattlesnakes or whatever and uh somewhere along the line though people just and i don't think it's all bad but they decided like there's money to be made here and uh and the morph thing really revved up like, I remember a guy told me, and this was, I mean, I was a kid. I was probably, I don't know, 15, 16. And the guy said, hey, and he knew I was into reptiles. He, he called me into his house. He said, man, you got to see this snake. It was an albino corn snake. And at the time, they were, this is like a brand new thing. I mean, this is like, I don't know, this was probably in the, air, the 80s, mid-80s, whatever. And I was like, God, dang, that's a nice snake, you know. And they, right now, an albino corn snake, most people won't even take the time to stop and look at it. You know, I mean, but it was back then, that was a stunning thing, you know. I mean, this guy had his corn snake group and he had added the albino to it and that was truly a remarkable animal, you know. I mean, and uh, I remember the first time I saw it, that was really something. And um, But now, I mean, they've come so far with it it's, and it's, it's kind of neat, but, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting time. And like, for instance, Tom Crutchfield, he's, once a month you get this price list from Tom Crutchfield god dang you want to see some stuff man there was stuff if you ever get a chance to go look at one of those things i wish i would have kept some of them now he had animals on like his crocodilian list there's probably 15 species on there you know on occasion there was tomistable on there and, and kruber crocs and stuff like that i mean it just you know and now you, if you look at a classified for for a crocodile it's gonna be a morelia dwarf caiman or you know american alligator or something like that but I mean, you can't even buy specs anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, used to be specs were literally in every fish store, across, fish store, not even reptile store. Specs were twenty-five to forty dollars in every fish store across America. You know, I mean, you could just get a spectacle came in anywhere. And uh, I mean, I saw thousands of these things when I was young, just because they were in every fish store across America. And uh, and now you you can't even have a spectacle came in, which is just crazy. You know, it's uh, it's, it's insane, but. Uh, that that's one of the big differences about today is stuff like that. And at the same time, there's probably more stuff actually available if you have permits and, and things like that. Because I mean, you know, the animals we have out here, as an example, I mean, they're just it's it's insane group of animals. I mean, it's truly an insane group of animals. I mean, the stuff that's here. I mean, everything from Chinese alligators, the Philippines, the to miss them. Basically, the only thing we don't have is garo. You know, I mean, they're probably coming within the next year or two, and uh, so you just. It's insane that the access is there if you cross your T's and dot your I's, you know, and that kind of stuff like that. It's it's, it's out there, but um, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah if, if um, you don't mind getting into it, what is that? I, I think a lot of people don't realize how much, like, permitting and paperwork and all that kind of stuff, the politics that goes into, like, running a reptile park and stuff, what, what has that been like? Yeah, and I, I tell people all the time, and I know I've told Nate a bunch, that the, the thing you really need to do always is you need to be above board. I, I tell people this this constantly because there's a lot of, you know, if you're in reptiles long enough or animals or anything, there's a lot of backdoor stuff that, uh, that can occur. And if you really want to have good relations where a lot of access to animals are, 
you just need to be above board. I mean, you know, basically be a person of integrity and uh, and run your and run your operation like that, because you know no one wants to deal with somebody who is potentially going to get an animal and then sell it for twenty thousand dollars. You know, two weeks later, you know, when they entrusted you with with the animal, and so. You know, when you get a facility, and I also tell people, build your facility first, and the animals will come. Because what happens is, just like I was talking about earlier, is crocodilians, like I said, are the perfect storm of size and offspring. And so one zoo breeding, if you have one zoo breeding, and let's say, let's just use, I don't know, we'll just use Orinocos, because that's one of as an example, you get 15 to 20 baby Orinoco crocodiles, let's say in 2020. By 2025, you're talking about 20 animals that are at probably six to nine feet. And at six to nine feet, they're several hundred pounds. Well, you can go to any zoo in the country and you look around at their holding area, they're not holding that many crocodiles at that size. So they have to find places for them to go. And that is where and some of these animals end up in very poor conditions until good homes are found for them. And that is where the rub with crocodilians always is. And if you have a good facility and you have a good track record, um, it's a good place to potentially help out a lot of these animals and do it above board and, and actually make a really positive difference in the programs. But if you conduct your business in such a way that you know, you're not a trustworthy facility or you don't have good care or anything like that, it's there, you're not going to be a viable outlet for some of these animals because the animals are really valuable. They're part of a program and, uh, and nobody expects perfection or anything like that. I mean, we're absolutely not perfect or anything like that, but, you know, if we make a mistake, you know, we own it and we try to do better, you know, the next time. And, uh, and that's just kind of, we've been pretty, I mean, we've had these animals out here for decades now, you know, so. That's, that's kind of the in and out of how that goes, you know. They'll find you. If you have a good facility, they'll find you, you know. Because <laughs> there's a lot of animals, man. <laughs> there's a bunch. Kind of the reptile park of dreams, the, the Kevin Costner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. You build it, they will find you. Yeah, they'll come for sure, yeah. Because that, that's basically how it started out here, you know. We built it in... Uh, we were just going to keep now crocodiles and American alligators because we really, because we wanted to show people what a crocodile was, wanted to show people a native alligator, build a conservation, you know, right. And even to this day, we could run our park with just those two species and be just fine. I, I don't think it would hurt our gate one one bit. And um, but the Houston Zoo is very close to us. They're about 25, 30 minutes down the road, and the curator there is a good friend of mine, and we've just developed a partnership through the years, and so just through networking, you know, from him and the, the experiences we've had with them and him talking to other zoos, then we end up, they talk to each other and one talks to another, blah, 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 blah. You know, over the last 15, 20 years, we know everybody now, we deal with everybody. And so, you know, it, it's just really easy to move animals around and, and stuff like that. So, it's been very convenient in a lot of ways. Yeah. So you mentioned you could probably run your facility just on Nile Crocs and American Alligators. Yeah. So what are the things that really draw you to uh, Nile Crocs in particular? Oh, there's no, you know, American alligator is very storied, but Nile crocodiles are a very storied 
animal. They, they, they're bonded to the African culture, which in a way few other animals are. They've been worshipped as a deity for thousands of years, you know. And then on top of that, the animals actually, they're the perfect animal to show the public because they're a big, powerful predator. They're on TV all the time. I mean, all the time. So most people at least have some understanding of what a Nile crocodile is. They're a beautiful animal. I mean, they can really have a lot of color to them. And maybe my favorite part about them at all is they're very intelligent and extremely trainable. You know, they're, they're not nearly the, uh, there are far, far worse crocodiles in terms of attitude than Nile crocodiles. I mean, we've got to put, I, I'll mow the grass with Nile crocs. And, you know, I'm not going to say on occasion it's not challenging, but 95% of the time, I can just move them around. There, we've had times where I've weed whacked around a Nile crocodile and she didn't even move. You know, I literally weed whacked around her body as if you're like outlining her or something like that. You know, they just get, they get really used to you. And uh, part of it is because we've raised all of ours here. We don't bring in any adults from any place else ever. And, uh, well, I shouldn't say ever. There are some more Nokos in this group, but even then, most of those have been raised here. But um, for now, crocodiles, they've all been born here. They've all been raised here. They've been with people since day one. Um, and they get very used to a routine. And that's actually one of our secrets here because people always say they'll walk by some of our enclosure and they go, wow, this is really close. Well, part of the reason we're able to do it is these animals have been with people since day one. And they know the routine, they know the barriers and stuff like that, and uh, it works really, really well. So, but yeah, that's 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 why we like the Nile crocodile. Plus, they're more cold taller than any other crocodile in the world. So even you know they have a, they have a, a, a resiliency now. Now we have lost crocodiles in winters through the decades, not many, um, but you know, given the proportion of crocodiles we keep, it's it's really small. But uh, but they are much more cold tolerant than the other now other crocodiles so they, they're pretty resilient do you bring in your um crocodiles in the winter or all the crocodiles come in except for the Nile crocs the chinese alligators and the american alligators and if it gets really bad we do bring the Nile crocodiles in like last winter was the coldest winter in texas in like 100 years and we brought in every single Nile crocodile that was out there so we had them everywhere <laughs> literally <laughs> everywhere stuff the gills <laughs> we had we had they were everywhere is that what um, draw you to uh, monitor lizards too, is the intelligence aspect? Yeah, to some degree. Um, you, the monitor lizard is not a comparable animal intelligence-wise to a crocodile. Um, they're an intelligent animal in terms of like other lizards and snakes and that kind of stuff. But the basic biology of a crocodile compared to an, uh, say a monitor lizard is very different. The crocodile is the only reptile that has the, the well-developed cerebral cortex. Um, they're closely related to birds, which a lot of people blows a lot of people's minds. So the bird and the crocodile are much more similar than say the crocodile and say the Komodo dragon or any other monitor lizard. And so why I find monitor lizards interesting, um, you know, for a lot of different reasons, their intelligence is not one of them, at least not because when you spend any amount of time with a crocodile or an alligator, um, they, any other reptile just is very, very stupid. <laughs> There's really no other way to say it. The trainability, crocodiles and alligators will learn a routine. Man, sometimes it's two or three days. They, they, they learn and, and focus so well that it's really, um, 
honestly, sometimes it can be problematic because if you're doing something wrong, usually within two days, that crocodile's picked up on your behavior. And this is how they hunt. I mean, they, they follow people even in Africa and such like that to go to the water and, you know, bathe there. And if you do it two days in a row in some of these places, that crocodile's there on day three. You know, I mean, you won't have a day four then, you know, I mean, that's how that works. And so they're very, very different than any other reptile. And once you spend time with them, it's so blatantly obvious. That's why y'all see online discussions sometimes when people sit there and say, well, I got this and I got this. And I'm going like, God, you people just don't even know. I mean, I just, you really just, it's just because that's just people that have no real experience with them. They're, they're vastly different than any other reptile out there. And, that, and that's actually one of the reasons that once you start working with them, so few people revert back to other reptiles that have been really deep into crocodiles. Because once you get really deep into them, there's a, an understanding there and an interaction that's cap that you're capable of with them that you're not able to have with other reptiles. And even though you start, you can keep other reptiles, like I said, we have other reptiles out here right now, they really pale in the type of relationship that you can form with them. I, I would go as far as to say that the only real true give and take you can have with a reptile relationship is with the crocodilian because they're the only ones that are actually truly understanding what is happening there. Because, and not only that, they have the largest social component of any reptile in the world. I mean, you know, they take care of their young. The, the, the vocalization level that they do is beyond anything any other reptile does because they're closely related to birds. And so because you're so closely related to a bird, I mean, everybody knows that birds flock and birds talk and birds take care of their young. Reptiles don't do that stuff. You know, they just don't do that stuff on the same level. And so then you get, like, everybody thinks, although if a lizard looks at its baby, hey, take care of its baby, it's awesome. You know, well, crocodiles do this as a matter of course. I mean, that mother will stay with those babies for up to two years, and they talk back and forth. The, the bellowing of the alligators in the swamps to, to communicate back, there's 20-some different sounds alligators make to communicate. It's, it's a totally different experience with them. And so, you know, not everybody gets it. If you keep, like, a dwarf came in, you keep one, you'll learn some of this. But if you keep them in a naturalistic system, you can keep them in a group, you'll see stuff that will just blow your mind. I mean, it just, you know, the communication level is just, it's just unbelievable, you know, so. Do you find there's a, 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 a hierarchy in their, in their social structures? Oh, very much so. That's, yeah, very much so. And it, and it resets anytime you add an animal to the group. One of the more, we were talking about this today, actually, uh, one of the more difficult things to do is introduce animals to groups and we have one now crocodile here that a guy raised in his basement in uh, Massachusetts and he sent it down here to us which you know we were glad to take it but it has been a problem animal every group we put it in because the the social component of that animal just did not develop because it was by itself for seven years and that in of itself would be a worthy study as to why this occurs whether its language is just not understood by the other crocodiles or you know it's just so antisocial that uh, but like we put it in different groups and sometimes it gets it's the outcast sometimes she tries to be the strong animal and it just it's it's very interesting to see but it happens with the animals like that that are not raised together if they're raised together you don't have any of these problems none it's they're fantastic together you know but we have animals out here that have always been raised together we can move them group to group and they do they're just fine and it's they understand each other the communication is fine and uh but a singly raised animal is a real problem 
you know, it takes a while for them to adjust to, to learn the languages, so. Something, something I've heard a lot, and talking to people like you, I, um, I think there's more to it, so I'm curious what your thoughts on. Um, when I've heard about, like, hierarchy of, like, the social structure of, like, crocodiles and stuff, they usually just say it's, like, there's there's really just two. There's, like, the, the more dominant ones and the, the, the more subordinate ones. Is, is it more complex than that, or... It's more complex than that, but if you get down to brass tacks, I mean, that's pretty much how it is. I mean, you got a dominant animal in there. It's typically the dominant bull. But it also depends on how they're kept. If your enclosure is large and there's a lot of um, nooks and crannies, a lot of water, you can have more than one dominant animal, cause like, but they'll stay in their own territory. You know, and, and like that, and kind of subdivide it up, and that's how it would be. And it's also species level too. Like now, crocs tend to be very gregarious. So unless you have like a really antisocial one, they do fairly well in groups. Um, saltwater crocodiles are not very good in groups. I mean, even with minimal animals together, you can sometimes with some real problems. Uh, American alligators are kind of a mixed bag. They you know, a lot of times you end up keeping a lot of them together, but they also tend to really like to space themselves out so if they have a choice to do so as well. So, Philippine crocs are an absolute worst crocodile on the planet. <laughs> it's the worst uh, I mean, in between aggression and, uh, and they do not like to be around each other a lot at all. So, uh, Orinocos, they do pretty well together. Although, on occasion, we have had, uh, we had an Orinoco crocodile killed by uh, Coast Pacific um, last year. And every group we put that crocodile in, she was attacked. So we put them in this other group, and these animals get along perfectly. They've been along together. For, we never have any issues with them. She was attacked there. We put them in another, put her in another group where animals were getting along very peacefully. She was attacked there. Our hypothesis on this, we think she might have been what is called a hot female. And um, what happens when you do that is you have your females that are at a certain temperature and your males are at a certain temperature but then when you go high again you get another female but that female is called a hot female and um, they we have a, our running hypothesis on this is that they are seen as a challenger to the males because it's the males that are always attacking her the females leave her alone and so we we're not sure why this is but our, both of our males are very peaceful never do anything to anybody both of them attacked her. One almost killed her, and we let her recover for two, almost two full years, put her in the other group, that male attacked and killed her. So we, we our running hypothesis is that was what's called a hot female, and, uh, and uh, there's something going on with that there, and that's a social thing there that, uh, you know, it's really weird. Yeah, I wonder how, I'm guessing they must just be able to Maybe there's like a hormonal imbalance or something that they're. I'm not, yeah, I'm, we're not sure. They can definitely tell though, because she was a she. I don't want to say immediately, but it was within a month she was picked. I mean, immediately the males found her and attacked her. Really, really, really crazy. It's one of the weirdest things we've actually seen, you know. So. Do you know if there's any studies being done on not that? Not on that. No, that's why we are saying we call it a hypothesis, but it, it would definitely be one that would be worthy of. Uh, see, to do it, you have to have enough animals, and you have to have known hot animals to do it and there's just not a lot of that being done on farms or zoological facilities because because nobody wants the hot end of it you know so they're they're not considered to be as good a breeder or you know or stable as animals so but it's an interesting it's an interesting observation though so yeah for sure all right matt you got any other questions 
Yeah, you bet. Take care, man. Yeah, see ya.